0: Hello and welcome to the USURF Spotlight podcast, a weekly podcast series by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, where we take a deep dive into religious freedom conditions around the world, breaking the situation down for you. Each week we focus on a different country, region, or topic. Not only do we analyze and explain the religious freedom situation to our listeners, but we also make policy recommendations to the United States government in order to address the immense challenges we bring to light here. Now, here is the host of our show, USERF Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, to lead today's discussion.
1: Welcome to USERF Spotlight. After a brief hiatus, we are back with our first episode in 2022. Today, we're going to discuss trends and developments that we've been tracking in Central and East Africa, particularly in countries such as Cameroon, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Uganda, and Kenya. In several of these countries, there are many dynamics at play, including political crises and violent insurgencies, both of which pose serious challenges to freedom of religion or belief in the countries there. In recent years, we've been observing problematic government actions in each of these countries towards religious leaders and uh, several religious communities. Now, to explore these dynamics further, uh, we're fortunate today to have with us uh, policy analyst Mohi Omer, who covers East and Southern Africa, and Madeline Velturo, our policy analyst covering West and Central Africa. Mohi Madeline, uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us, glad to be here. Good to see you guys again here on USERF Spotlight. Madeline. why don't we start uh, with you to talk about Central Africa and work our way east. What developments are you tracking that may have uh, implications for religious freedom?
2: Yeah, thanks Dwight, it's it's an important question. And there are three countries in Central Africa that I've been watching particularly closely and I wanna discuss all three briefly, but I'll, I'll try to be succinct um, first. I would be remiss if I didn't start out by highlighting that I continue to survey the situation in the Central African Republic, or CAR, um, which USERF recommended to be placed on the special watch list just up until last year. So listeners can consult uh, the July episode, actually, of this very podcast to learn more on that. But generally speaking, the early dynamics in CAR's ongoing civil conflict overlapped significantly with ethno-religious identity. Um, leading to many attacks on houses of worship, religious leaders, and individuals based on, on religion. And so while uh, violence on the basis of religion has reduced there in recent years, there are still occasional reports of armed elements, uh, including government forces attacking houses of worship or communities based on ethno-religious affiliation, um, as well as implicit anti-Muslim bias embedded in car government institutions. And so I continue to keep a close eye on the dynamics there. Um, Second, we've also seen some worrying trends in Cameroon. So Cameroon is also embroiled in a violent civil conflict, uh, and it has been since 2017 when separatists in the country's uh, Southwest and Northwest regions declared independence from the country's central government in Yaoundé, citing grievances rooted in the Francophone federal government's systematic marginalization of Anglophone minorities. Um, And so while this is not a predominantly religious conflict, actors on both sides have committed religious freedom violations in the course of their campaigns against one another. So we've had evidence of both separatists and government authorities abducting and detaining um, outspoken Catholic priests who had been advocating for peaceful solution um, in order to harass and intimidate them into silence. We've also seen evidence of times when government forces have invaded and desecrated churches, um, sometimes during services um, and sometimes killing parishioners and even instances of government forces using churches as bases from which to wage battle against insurgents. And then finally, in some pockets of the conflict, um, especially in the Northwest region, uh, we've also seen indiscriminate ethno-religious targeting of Fulani Muslims following allegations that some Fulani Muslim individuals had collaborated with government forces to perpetrate violence against civilians. So like in CAR, Cameron is a majority Christian country where we have seen Muslims kind of serve as scapegoats in these contexts. And then finally, this year, we've seen some political developments in the Democratic Republic of Congo or DRC that have had implications for religious freedom there. So DRC has an interesting structure where religious leaders play a role in approving the president's appointee to the head of the country's independent electoral commission, which is known by its French acronym, the SINI. And so earlier this year... The Catholic church representative in this process openly and publicly opposed President Chisiquetti's selection for the head of the Sini, Dennis Kadima, Um, um, actually as did the representative from the second largest religious community, the the Church of Christ in Congo or the UCC. So um, in retaliation for its lack of political support, the Chisiquetti administration in Kinshasa began to bash the Catholic Church writ large in the press, with some reports even alleging that the government officials used state-owned local language media to incite violence against Catholic parishes. Um, And this led to violence and desecration of Catholic churches, both in and around the capital in Kinshasa, as well as churches in the Kasai region, which is the home region of President Chisikeri. So reports include the destruction and theft of tabernacles, altar stones, um, sacred vessels, holy statues, and in August, a violent mob targeted the residence of the Archbishop of Kinshasa, um, which is the highest ranking Catholic representative in all of Central Africa, uh, vandalizing his property and reportedly chanting slogans that had been promulgated on state media days earlier. Now, obviously this level of desecration and violence against religious sites is highly problematic, all the more so if it's true that the government had a hand in inciting it. Um, However, it's important to note that there are religious minority communities in DRC who have been victim to this type of disrespect and desecration of holy sites for many years. Uh, You know, I'm speaking of course of indigenous communities and practitioners of traditional religions. Um, For many of whom ancestral lands and natural spaces rather than buildings, hold spiritual significance. Um, And according to a 2019 report by the UN Special Rapporteur on the rights of indigenous peoples, state-backed agricultural um, forestry and conservation initiatives have encroached on sacred indigenous spaces for decades. um, And Congolese law doesn't protect indigenous lands that are used for religious practices. So I think any analysis of trends of desecration of sacred sites in DRC would be incomplete without mentioning those long-standing violations against indigenous communities.
1: Yeah, definitely some worrying trends, particularly in countries that, uh, of course, U.Surf does not report on, uh, you know, extensively uh, or uh, you know, ha- uh, is, are included in our reporting, in any detail. So it's important that you were able to highlight uh, a number of these uh, concerns and and patterns. You know, earlier this year, the State Department designated an insurgency group in uh, eastern DRC as a terrorist organization. Uh, citing their links to the Islamic State. Is this also an issue uh, for religious uh, freedom in DRC? And how would that relate to the political crisis you've been describing?
2: Yeah, definitely. DRC is a massive country. And the group you're referencing operates in an entirely different geography um, uh, than the political crisis all the way over in Eastern DRC. you know, Eastern DRC is home to a very complex web of hundreds of armed groups um, that have been operating in the region for decades. And one of them, um, the Allied Democratic Forces or the ADF declared allegiance to the Islamic State in 2019 and has since come to be known as ISIS-DRC to some. Um, But the ADF actually originated across the border in Uganda in the mid nineties. It was a movement turned insurgency seeking to reform Islamic practice and governance in Uganda. Um, And it was expelled violently by the Ugandan government in 2003. So since then it's been operating in DRC. um, And for the bulk of its history in DRC, the ADF has not appeared to espouse a particularly religious ideology or approach Although Islamizing uh, and reforming Islamic practice in Uganda has always remained its um, stated goal, but the EDF frequently partners with Christian and non-Muslim armed groups and, and communities in DRC um, as it has sought to carve out and maintain territory. And for the most part, it conducts violence against civilians indiscriminately, regardless of religious identity. So when the group decided to declare allegiance to the Islamic State, analysts were a bit perplexed. And they started asking, you know, has the role that religion plays in the group's modus operandi grown stronger? Um, Now, to be honest, there doesn't seem to be much evidence to that effect. Um, The ADF did claim to participate in ISIS's global battle of attrition in May and June of 2020 by specifically targeting Christian villages. But other than that, the ADF has continued to commit violence indiscriminately. So perhaps the ADF's participation in the battle of attrition was a political signal to demonstrate fealty to ISIS or the project of a particularly devout general within the group but whatever the motivation the trend of targeting Christians does not appear to have stuck However, that's not to say that this development has had no further implications for religious freedom in the region. In the region, because the linking uh, of the ADF with the Islamic State appears to have co- coincided with an increase in violent threats against Muslims and Muslim leaders, particularly in eastern Congo. So this may indicate that latent anti-Muslim bias in this predominantly Christian country is being aggravated by rhetoric surrounding the ADF's links to the Islamic State. You know, in other words, just people may be treating all Muslims as if they are terrorists. Um, It could also indicate that the ADF fighters themselves have begun targeting Muslim leaders uh, who don't agree with interpretation of Islam, um, or perhaps a bit of both. But this is particularly important to highlight um, in the light of recent military campaigns that were launched by the Ugandan government um, to neutralize the ADF. So in November, The Congolese government invited Ugandan troops to cross the border and insist in the military fight against the ADF. And since then, Ugandan Congolese forces have been bombarding the Beni region, which is known to house the ADF with with, uh, military activity. Now, Uganda does not have the strongest religious freedom track record. And in fact, it was restrictive religious policies in Uganda in part that fueled some of the radicalization of the ADF leaders there three decades ago. So we're just now receiving the first reports of the carnage from these military campaigns, um, including reports that human rights abuses and violations took place over the course of the operation. So my concern is that Ugandan forces may have indiscriminately targeted Muslims uh, in in eastern Congo, based on the assumption that that all Muslims in the Beni territory were affiliated with the ADF, um, but as of yet we don't have hard data on that.
1: Well, that's uh, certainly a, a good segue talking to Uganda and some of their activities in DRC. Uh, to Mohi, we'll bring in here to discuss what he's seeing in Uganda. Mohi, what have you been observing in terms of the dynamics at play in Uganda that have implications for religious freedom?
3: Absolutely. Uh, Thank you, Duane, And thank you, Madeline, for highlighting what is taking place in Eastern Uganda. It is true that the constitution actually prohibits religious discrimination, but in practice, we don't see that. The government has been systematically engaged engaged in religious freedom violations. And a clear example on where this begins is that the government requires all public schools to teach either Christianity or Islam in their social studies. That automatically leaves out students coming from indigenous religions, as well as students coming from parents that don't have any religious affiliations and those who are not religious at all. And there have been reports from organizations that been tracking this issue that uh, kids coming from atheists or, agnostics or non-believers have been complaining and the government is not doing anything about it. In terms of actual discrimination based on religious groups, we've seen as Madeline mentioned that the government is engaged in systematically discriminating against the Muslim community there. For example, uh, the Ugandan police evicted leaders of the Salafi association, it's called uh, tabliq, tabligh Muslim group in, in Kampala and they arrested seven of them and they haven't been released for over a year and also just as of last year the security actually forces arrested six Muslim imams in Masaka district and, hold, and held them for about a year until the court actually ordered that they be released And the accusation was that they were part of this allied Democratic Front, right? That Madeline was talking about. Also, we have seen reports that are showing discrimination against the government, government discriminating against the Muslim community when it's distributing uh, national resources, as well as hiring for government positions. Not only that, but also the Ugandan government has been discriminating against Christians. We've seen last year, the government arrested an evangelical priest after he questioned the government messaging on COVID-19. So it's not just one specific group that the government has been discriminating against. If we see, if we just look at their practices across, we see that they discriminate against different religious groups, even though the discrimination has been impacting the Muslim community in the country.
1: Thanks for that, Mohi. I understand that there also have been some worrying trends in Kenya that you've also been tracking. Can you tell us more about what you're seeing there? Absolutely, Uh,
3: Kenya is is very interesting because it's a democratic country and the constitution is very clear when it comes to uh, human rights issues and religious freedom and freedom of expression and the like. Uh, We have been reporting, uh, we reported on news, we reported on Kenya until 2017, highlighting religious freedom issues there. And in terms of discrimination, the government is engaged in serious religious freedom violations in the country. Since 2014, the government has not registered any new religious organizations, leaving thousands of pending applications. And the reason is very clear that the Kenyan government relies on this anti- terrorism law to justify its discrimination. Using this law, the government has justified extrajudicial killings, enforced disappearances, torture, arbitrary arrest, and detention of Muslims in the country. Since the Westgate attack that happened in 2013, I believe, is that since then, the government has been systematically going after the Muslim community. Let me just give you a few examples of what the government had done against the Muslim community. Haki Africa is a human rights NGO that works closely with the Muslim community in Kenya, called on Kenyan authorities to investigate four cases of enforced disappearances of Muslim boys, young boys from 17 to 16, below 16, who were last seen at the police custody. This happened in 2021. And as of August of last year, also the police reportedly abducted two Muslim clerks and caretaker from a Muslim-run school in Kithili County. Also, in addition to that, we've seen the, the government is engaging in not only uh, discriminating against Muslims who are engaged in religious activities, but also in ISLI, in Nairobi, where the majority of uh, Muslims in Nairobi live, we've seen the government is targeting specific mosques by placing uh, cameras, as well as recording devices into their masks, as well as uh, Centers that are like mainly occupied by the Muslim community. And not only that, but also the government is failing to protect the Christian community. Uh, Al Shabaab from Somalia operating in Kenya, they have been engaged in religious, just you know, religious freedom uh, violations of, of non Muslims. In January of last year, media reported that Al Shabaab killed three Christian teachers at a primary school in Grisa County. And in February of last year, we also saw Al-Shabaab attacking a passenger bus, traveling from Mandera to Nairobi. And they literally stopped the bus and singled out non-Muslims and literally killed them in front of the uh, passengers. That was horrific, that was uh, reported by the media. And those are non-Muslims, the government is, failing to protect its population from Al-Shabaab infiltrating coming across the border from Somalia, as well as some you know, sympathetic uh, individuals living in Kenya who support the activities of uh, Al-Shabaab. So th- those are very clear violations and. The international community, human rights organizations have been closely monitoring the situation and reporting on these violations and calling on the Kenyan government to change course. But as of now, we we haven't seen any changes taking place.
1: You know, we'd be remiss if uh, I didn't uh, have you uh, talk about some of what you've been seeing in Ethiopia since you've been tracking that closely since the outbreak of the civil war in 2020. Uh, What are some of the latest uh, trends you've been observing there?
3: Yeah, Ethiopia, we also reported on Ethiopia until 2014, I believe. And uh, since the uh, outbreak of the Civil War, we've seen huge violations of human rights, including religious uh, freedom in the country, not only uh, committed by the Ethiopian government, but also by uh, Eritrean governments, supporting the uh, Ethiopian government that is engaged in civil war in the Tigray region. So the government, for example, since the civil war broke out, the Ethiopian government has detained Ethiopian journalists and limited limited their freedom of, you know, freedom of international press to visit where the civil war was taking place to report on it. And most recently, actually they arrested, uh, they suspended the license of Reuters, as well as they issued warning to the BBC not to report on what was happening in the Tigray region. The government also been shutting down the internet, cutting off communication to impact you know, real, uh, human rights issues in that part of, of the country. And not only in the Tigray region, this is happening across the country, right? Cutting the communication in Addis Ababa that is impacting the ability of people to, to really track what was happening uh, in, in the Tigray region. In terms of concrete religious freedom violations, during the war, we've seen the national army attacking and killing hundreds of individuals who were hiding at the ground of the Church of Mary of Zion. So this is one of the oldest churches in the world. It's I think it's like they said, it's 700 years old or so. In addition to that, just in late of 2020, we've seen the government is attacking individuals and who were hiding also under the uh, ground of a An-Naj- Najashi mosque. This is also one of the oldest mosques. It's older than a lot of mosques in the Middle East and severely even damaging the building in itself. And there were videos out there showing the government is really attacking this particular historical building and damaging it. Uh, we've seen also the richian troops actually in Tigray killing hundreds of civilians who were trying to hide under the Aksum church. And, and finally, we've seen also the Emanuel Orthodox Church in Wukuru was reportedly looted and by the Ethiopian and Eritrean troops engaged in, uh, in, in the war in, in the Tigray region. So yes, we've seen this is happening uh, in Ethiopia. Not only religious freedom are violated, but basic human rights are violated in, in Tigray and increasingly across the country.
1: Well, we'll have to leave it uh, right here. I want to thank uh, both Mohi Omer and Madeleine Velturo, uh, policy analyst at USERF, for sharing their insights and expertise uh, and the reminder that we do have a number of worrying trends uh, that have been going on in several countries there in, uh, in Africa and East and Central Africa. Uh, but it is very important to identify these problematic trends before things even get uh, further out of hand. And I know you'll both continue to monitor things very closely uh, that, you've, that you've highlighted today. You can find USURF's reporting on uh, various countries in Africa and see our full set of recommendations for U.S. policy on our website. As always, thanks for joining us today, and we'll see you next time on USURF Spotlight.
0: To learn more about USURF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit USURF.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F dot gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at U-S-C-I-R-F. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USURF Spotlight.